Welcome to the Leap Health in the Workplace podcast. Leap Health empowers individuals and organizations to improve both their physical and mental health. In this podcast, we explore innovative, bespoke, proven health solutions that will improve your personal and professional productivity and happiness. I'm Anna Reddy. Let's get ready to make small steps to Leap Health. So welcome to the podcast today. I am hugely, hugely excited to welcome Andy Cracknell. Andy is a marketing director and communications consultant and likes to play in a creative problem-solving space. His GCI index profile is Game Changer Strategist. He's also an advocate for men's mental health and recently shared his story and the battles he's had with his mental health. And this really fits into the podcast today because we really want to focus on my whole self. Very shortly, it's a mental health first aid day all around, being your whole self you know, at work and at home. And this really fits in nicely with this. And I really feel like you will get a lot from today. And he suffered with a number of life traumas in the first half of his life, including the tragic loss of his nine-week-old son, Jesse, which resulted in a diagnosis of PTSD. And he spends some of his time working with organisations who support mental health and believes that if people can establish an understanding of their core energy, this will really help them with the mental health resilience and being able to manage challenging times. Andy says, I've come to the same crossroads. I came to the same crossroads a number of times. I could have given up and walked away from life or I could bear down and push through it. I wasn't going to let the cards of life that life had dealt me beat me. Really, really inspirational, moving words. And Andy did actually kindly let me watch some videos that he'd recorded for Terrestrial Channel, um, UK Channel. It's a two-part documentary but at the time wasn't in a place for those to go live. But they were extremely moving, extremely emotional. And at points I did have to pause and just take a moment because they were really, really moving. Um, however, really inspirational at the same time. So I really hope you're going to get a lot from today. We're going to explore lots of different areas. Um, and at the end of it, Andy is going to give us three really, really succinct steps as to how you can be whole self in life and live the best life. So thank you, Andy. Is there anything that I've left out there? I, I think you pretty much covered it. That was brilliant. Thank you. It's nice so, to be here. Lovely, lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you once again. So we're going to kick off with finding your way. So, you know, the videos that you let me, you know, have a little listen to, watch and listen to really explored everything that you'd been through in life but a lot of it was like finding your way and really finding where you could have the biggest impact so just talk us through that a little bit please to give listeners a bit of an idea to where you've come from um, and where you are now <laughs> yeah so uh, it's so funny because over the years I mean humanity has this big thing about labeling people right <clears throat> and ultimately being labeled or not being labeled was what caused me the biggest problem so, um, yeah, it sounds like I'm on a psych psychotherapist chair, but I had a normal upbringing. I was dead happy growing up, um, bullied at school, um, quite badly at school, but my home life was, was the, the medication to that for want of a better way of putting it. And it, and we'll look at it a bit more later on, but it, it kind of left me off kilter through my teenage years and I was quite disruptive. Um, and 
the finding your way piece or finding my way piece i've only really realized what i was doing having sat and reflected and kind of looked at it retrospectively um so uh, let, let's put steve jobs in mind when he talks about um you know disruptors and they're the people that um think differently to everyone else or alienated and all this kind of stuff um i prefer to call them game changers but we'll come on to that so um I would go into um, roles, uh, entry-level roles when I'd left school, um, left college, sorry. And within three or four months, would either get incredibly bored and frustrated, and it didn't matter what the do, could have been anything, I'd have got bored and frustrated. Or I would have started annoying people and then built up a bit of a name or a reputation. And then that would always end up with me being managed out or it would end up with me leaving or on the odd occasion actually getting sacked rather spectacularly. Um, And I think the problem I had was that because I was disruptive, people weren't prepared to invest the time into um, putting the reins on, I suppose is one way of putting it, but actually utilizing that energy um for the for the i love this term for the greater good so in my raw state i'm 200 mile an hour 50,000 ideas a day incredibly analytical around uh, and and opportunistic so looking for opportunities to make things better it's rarely ever self motivated it's always i'll give you one example i worked for a large tour operator and um the first kind of five weeks were training in the classroom. Three of those were on a system called Galileo. Now, if you're a 70s or 80s child or you worked in the travel industry at that time, you'll know all about Galileo, but it was an absolute nightmare of a system to use. All coding based, and it was primarily used to book seats on scheduled flights. And the training experience was, um, I use this term flippantly, but traumatic. Um, there were eight of us in the in the training session for the f- three weeks on that. None of us got it. Didn't make any sense. Company punched us out of the training session. Um, at the end of it all, put us live on the phones, trying to sell flights to tour operators. Now, the impact of that was that um, there were mistakes being made, costly mistakes, which would cost the organization hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, people got sacked because they didn't know what they were doing and it just led to a really um, unsettling experience. But there was something in my head that said, there's an easy way of fixing this. And the short version of the long story is that I took the training manual, completely rewrote it in my own time in a way that meant that when people were then going through the training, they get it. And by that point I'd already built up this, um, sense that my leadership at that point saw me as being quite disruptive and a bit of a pain in the back end really and but my intention was only ever to make everyone's life easier and to get rid of these problems like the costs and the you know the effect on people and everything else um and when i finished the rewrite i took it in and they wouldn't even read it this was my immediate management um that culminated then in a summer party about six months later where the CEO of the organization had come down to join everybody in this big barbecue and marquee and everything else. And I had tucked in my back pocket, this rewritten training guide. The first attempt to talk to him, I was intercepted by my line manager who swiftly removed me from the marquee and to ask me what I was doing. Um, 
I waited for an opportunity for him to disappear. And then I made a beeline for the CEO. The long and short of it was um, I gave it to him both barrels as a, as an untrained disruptor would presented the solution to the problem, got invited to head office, and they then rolled out the revised training sometime later. Sadly, the damage to the relationship with my middle management was such that I wasn't there much longer after that, but I was told a while after that they'd implemented it. So it, that was the first point I had a taste of, actually, you can make a difference. And being disruptive, nine times out of 10, you're going to get stamped on, but that one time out of 10, it's going to make a real difference. So I need to find an organization that will facilitate that and allow me to be disruptive, to coach me and train me, because I knew I was a handful. I, I needed guidance, but I never got that from any of my employees. So I rattled through life up to, so I'm 44 now, my early 30s as a disruptor and being a pain in the back end because I'd never had that coaching and development around Okay, you can say this, you can't say that. It's the political awareness piece. Um, so it took me three quarters of my life to this point to actually find my way. Now that in and of itself has caused a huge amount of scar tissue because, um, you know, it's only now that I'm really, well, as of eight years ago, that I've actually made anything decent of my career. And it left me feeling... Um, uh, I was solely responsible because I should have had the wherewithal to ask for the coaching uh, and support. I didn't, but it left me feeling somewhat like I'd wasted my life that I didn't actually achieve very much till I hit my early thirties. Um, so that finding your way is so important that employers recognize that actually when they're taking on people who are young, into their organization they're not getting a preformed model that's going to come in and do the job perfectly they're getting untapped uh, untapped raw talent that needs that um, nurturing and that development and sadly and this is true of most disruptors or game changers they don't get that recognition because they tend to be managed out um there are other areas other um energies of impact i suppose is the best description so game changer being one of them or disruptor others that will fit nicely within the corporate life but and they'll get that um but yeah for me it was a it was a long haul um of trying to work out what i was doing wrong um you know why it wasn't working and how do i still put this passion and energy into making a difference behind what i'm doing but without annoying people I think that's a really great story to demonstrate the importance of really understanding who you are within an organisation where you can have your biggest impact. And, you know, the way you've described your experience and then how it shaped you as well, um, you know, really shouts out to me that there's lots of little stages there that have contributed to chronic stress building up over the years. And if you're in an organisation where you're being knocked back all the time, you know, when you've got wonderful ideas that want to be pushed that you want to push forward that are gonna you know improve things um but you mean not back that's causing lots and lots of little chronic stresses all all the time along the way it's building up barriers all the time um and you know right now burnout is sky high isn't it and it's all these little chronic stresses that get people to a stage of burnout where ultimately they, they can't contribute so just to add on a little dig a little bit deeper to this one Andy 
what do you think made you so resilient and so determined, you know, to go up to that CEO and give him the revised course? What, you know, what do you think inspired you to do that? Well, so there's there's two answers to that question. Um, and being really transparent with you, I don't know which of the two is accurate. One of the answers scares me. The other answer is the one I prefer to think is the case. But I remember being stood in that marquee. It was about 30 degrees outside. It was the middle of summer. And I got to the point where I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care what the outcome was. I didn't care who I upset or offended. I was going to make my point. Now, there is a caveat to this, and this is one. This is something I, um, I have a huge insecurity about that I feel the need to defend before it's even brought up. My motivation is not self. It's not this is not arrogance coming out. This is a desire to see um, the uh, innovation and development of the greater good. So I've used that expression before already. I am not motivated by money. I'm not motivated by what materials I can get. I'm motivated by seeing groups of people I care about succeed. And that that's still the blood that runs through my veins. Now, the answer to your question is, as I said, I just got, it's either that I got to the point where I really didn't care anymore, almost like a self-sabotage thing, because I knew damn well if I went up to him and gave it to him both barrels, I'd probably get sacked on the spot. That was what I was expecting to happen. But I'd made my point. And if I'd done it in such a big way, such a dramatic way, somebody might actually listen. So, I suppose collateral damage is a good expression here. I didn't care whether I kept my job or not. What I cared about was actually changing what was going on. So, um, so that that's one version of it. The other version or the other answer is that I think it may have been that I had become so enamored and frustrated with what, with the blockages that were in the way that I was fairly confident because of the culture of the organization that the senior management would listen and therefore i was going to bulldoze my way through the middle management and just go straight over their heads to try and affect change that ultimately they would end up seeing the benefit from now there is a little tie in here i want to make to that the first answer around not caring and it being self-destructive is one of the symptoms of ptsd which we'll come on to later on um, it's one of the main uh, symptoms of PTSD is self-destructive behavior. And that can and normally manifest itself in things like um, drink, drugs, uh, reckless driving, driving too fast, violence, aggression, those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was a, in hindsight, I look back at it and think, wow, that was a hell of a risk. You, you were putting yourself under there. So yeah, um, the, the motivation was to, to, um, bring to life a vision of making things easier for people. Um, the, the the conduit to get there or the the the, uh, the method of transport was I just didn't care. I was going to do it. You've got to that stage where you just want to, you know, want to get your voice heard. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, you know, incredible story. I think there's two two points there that I really picked up from there that we can learn from that. Um, both around being proactive. So. You know, had senior leadership management been proactive and, 
you know, early on in your career there, recognised where your greatest impact was and where your strengths were and nurtured that, do you know, the outcome could have been totally different if that yeah. was nurtured early on. Um, and I think what we can also take away from this, being proactive, you know, for anyone listening who's early on in the career or, you know, youngster even at school or whatever, you know, really, really understanding yourself and understand, you know, where you can be yourself um, so that you can, you know, be proactive in steering your own journey early on and for the people to help those younger people to recognise who they are, nourish them and, and flourish oh. them in their way. Exactly. And I think and I think one of the issues there was I had no self-awareness. Now, th this is why I like this term game changer, because um, it, it sounds a bit woo woo, really. But th there was a gut feel in me and I always trust my gut. I never go against my gut feel. The gut feel was I had a purpose in this situation and I had to affect that purpose. I didn't know why. I didn't know. I didn't know what was driving me so hard, why I was getting so emotional about it, why I was getting so wound up about it. I, I'd been with that organization, I think for about nine months by that point. And, and just to add some context, I'd been chipped away at on a daily basis. So this isn't just Maverick walks in, um, sees the need to change and just blows up for the hell of it. This was like you were saying that build up of stress and pressure and everything else. So uh, 100%, you know, you've just made the point about young people. I think the thing that I always say to people is stick your head above the parapet. Because if you are, as was I, in a position where you're prepared to accept the consequences, if it goes wrong, then... Um, then you're on to you're on to a winner at some point. Now the other thing is is that I don't perceive risk. I'm not risk averse. I see and I don't see failure either. I see every occurrence or everything where someone else would say, Andy, you failed. My reaction is no, no, I haven't failed anything. I've learned from making mistakes. So now I can go back and do it again. Because I've still got that passion and that vision to deliver the thing. It's just that now I need to go about it slightly differently. Um, and this is the part of growing up and being able to identify who you are. It's le actually learning how your energy lays and where your focus is and your energy and your passion and what's important to you, where you sit morally on things. Um but it's also not about taking this gun ho attitude of I'm right, you're all wrong, you all need to shut up and listen to me because that doesn't work. An unrefined game changer behaves that way. Um, and it, and ironically, they often get labelled as arrogance and arrogant, and it's not arrogance; it's a desire for the greater good to succeed. And this is where a lot of the trauma comes in, kind of low level day to day stuff. Is this constantly being misunderstood and mislabeled and that was what happened at school that's why i was bullied because i was misunderstood i didn't fit in any of the stereotypical school groups like the academics or the sporty ones or the geeks or the you know the um the metalheads or whatever it was i was just unclassifiable and that scared people and that's why i ended up getting bullied um so it's it's like you say it's it's getting that self-awareness early on to understand one what it is that pushes you what your what energizes you where you want to make your impact and contribution 
and two, how you affect that. But it's also that self-awareness of how your behavior affects other people and why you get the reactions you get, because those are the learning opportunities that I missed out on. Both so there's there's work on both sides, isn't there? There's yeah. work for you know, even in, in the schools as well, to recognize, you know, there isn't a typical stereotype. Just, you know, let people be who they want to be and really, really allow them to go in their own way. Um interestingly, you're talking about, you know, it's not about failure, it's about learning from failure, sticking, you know, neck out on the line and just pushing yourself a little bit further. And a lot of Richard Branson's quotes are all around, you know. It's not failure, it's learning more, you know, anything that you that you maybe do wrong, you learn from and move on from. And if you look at Richard Branson, I guess, you know, if you're going to look at the type of person he is, he's game changer all over. So, um, yeah, I think it's just about being brave and being yourself. I'm going to move on to another area now, which, you know, I think we're going to tread carefully with. Um, around PTSD, and you mentioned this in your last response um, and we've been speaking a lot more around like the workplace and your professional life but now we're going to switch on to a really really traumatic personal experience that you had which probably is one of the most traumatic things that could happen to anybody and that was losing a child Jesse at nine weeks old and um, you did say that you experienced PTSD you know following this would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that amount, maybe what the signs and symptoms were and yeah. actually how you how you address that? Because it's just, you know, unimaginable for lots of people like what you've gone through and you're here today to tell the tale. So please, you know. Yeah, it, it's um, I think the important thing to start off with is is it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. The reality is, is that a trauma like that uh, will absolutely destroy you um the 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 line that i always people kept saying to me was you never expect to outlive your kids that used to infuriate me because it's like i, I understand what you're trying to say but i really don't want to hear that because you're you're just ramming the whole thing right into the middle of my face the 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 circumstances um and as we kind of were talking about before we started recording this um losing my son ended up in my marriage breaking down and um out of respect for my ex-wife there is one half of the story that I don't go into and that's her side because it's not fair on her um and we also had a daughter a year later um who's 17 she was 17 two days ago um, so I'm very mindful that there are two other people in this story and um, I am very conscious that I don't want to impact them by talking about something that's a part of them as well. So kind of what I'm about to go through and the conversations we have around this is very much from my perspective and it's intentional that I'm not talking about the other people involved because I just don't think it's fair for me to do that. So um Jess died on the 28th of May, which was the day before mine and my ex-wife's first wedding anniversary. And um, what followed is, is, is a great mess, really. There's no other way of describing it. The first six months, um, 
I have very little recollection of. Um, I know that um, when he died, so he died because he had an operation. It was uh, He went into what's called an intrapulmonary shunt, which is where the lungs shut down. So they stop functioning and you can't do chest compressions on them because it doesn't make any difference. You can't use ventilators because the chest goes rigid. So there's no way of getting oxygen into um, into the body. And what the medical professionals were saying was this was in Brighton. They wanted to fly. There's a toxic gas that they use that that releases the intrapulmonary shunt. And the only there's only three hospitals in the country that hold it because it's so toxic. They were going to fly it down by helicopter from one of these hospitals in London. But over overnight, that helicopter got diverted to so many different things that we never got the gas and just didn't make it. Now, <clears throat> um, the, 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 the only recollection I have of that from the point he died up to about six months after was actually driving back from the hospital on the morning he died and looking up at the sky and it was a single tone gray. Now there's a reason that I highlight that point, which I'll come back to in a little bit. The first six months, as I say, I've got very little recollection of, um, as you can probably well imagine, there was a lot of turmoil, a lot of, um, emotional distress, a lot of, um, you know, just absolute chaos. But my memory comes back about six months after, um, and it was a sense of um, there's been this massive nuclear explosion and I literally have no idea who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm supposed to be doing and um, how I'm supposed to function. I couldn't sleep. I wasn't eating. I All my life I've been tall and skinny and I kind of average around 11 and a half stone. But that period I was down to about eight and a half, nine stone. I'm six foot six, by the way. Um, And I found it really difficult to control uh, emotion. Uh, I don't know why I feel I need to say this, but this is always a strong reaction. I was never aggressive. I used to just cry a lot and literally fall to pieces in the most awkward and weird um you know situations and there was an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame now the guilt and shame came from this um i was brought up fairly traditionally so um you know as a man you protect your family you protect your wife you protect your children i'd failed on all counts that was the way i saw it um and it's an uncontrollable feeling of guilt and shame. Now that is a, a symptom of PTSD. It's one of the key seven symptoms. The irritability and the emotional outbursts are also symptomatic of PTSD. And um, so is a, a, an inability to sleep or problems concentrating, all of which are suffered with. Now, as that time then progressed and then my daughter was born and she was born uh, a year, as I say, a year after. Um, uh, hang on. Let me just work the chronology out. Yeah, it was about a year after Jess died. Um, that forced me into a mental state of survival. So up to that point, I was just, it was chaos. I didn't know if I was going to live the next day or what was going to happen. But then when my daughter was born, um, it gave, it brought some normality back to 
the day-to-day and me having to function as a human being and having to do the things that I'd had hardwired into me as a man or a boy. And that is you, you protect your family and you protect your wife. Um, and as the, and it's wrong saying it, but as normality set back in because it's never normal after you've lost a child, but as the normal, um, pattern of day-to-day behavior kicks in where it's feed the baby, change a nappy, do this, do that, go out for a walk, cook dinner, whatever it might be. Those mundane tasks were the only things that kept me ticking forwards. And there comes a point where you, uh, and it's the 21, uh, there's a cycle of 21 days, which is to do with the grieving process, um, which um, I think if people Google, but high level basically, and whenever you go through a trauma, it takes 21 days for your brain to accept that it's happened. And then beyond that, it's then down to the individual how quickly they actually accept it. So the example would be a relationship breakup. The first three weeks, you're in bed eating ice cream. I know we're stereotyping here, but you know, for the sake of illustration, uh, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you feel sick, all the rest of it, you're emotionally distraught. But there is something in your brain at 21 days, and it's the same for everybody, where there is a renewed energy of, right, it's happened. Now I've got to get over it. Okay. So for various reasons, um, and as you can imagine, depending on the trauma, depends on how uh, near the surface that process occurs. Um, But there came a point 21 days after my daughter was born where actually I managed to get a grip on everything. But the symptoms were still there. So I could control the symptoms, but the symptoms were still there. Now, at that point, I never thought anything of it. Just, okay, so we've been through this horrific thing. Um, Our daughter's here now, need to focus on her. Um, I'm just going to suck it up and get on with life. You know, pull your socks up. I think the expression is get on with it. Um. So then the following nine months, it was over that time that the erosion to our marriage happened and various things happened um, that kind of really finished that off. Um, But I was still laser focused on doing as best I could the right things. But what I didn't realize was that actually... I, I my perception of reality was so distorted that what I perceived I was doing was right was actually not. And what I mean by that, it's like having a car accident, not getting out and checking your car and then just driving on. And then you find out when you get where you're going that your two rear wheels are missing. It's that kind of uh, analogy. So ultimately, um, me and my ex split up. And um, it was only at that point when I then went through that trauma that the overwhelming sense of guilt and shame came back, irritability, emotional distress, couldn't concentrate, couldn't work, couldn't sleep, got into a self-destructive cycle again. Um, I was constantly alert for a threat. So whether it was physical threat, violence, I was riding motorbikes at the time, you know, risks of accidents, those kinds of things. It was, it, it just we're all aware of risk, but at that point it just felt like it was a big tannoy system in my head saying there's a risk, there's a risk, there's a risk. Um, and I was easily frightened as well. Now I'm fairly fearless. I, you know, in my younger years, I'm going to throw myself off mountains and out of airplanes and 
uh, kayak across the channel and all this kind of stuff. I was quite, I was a bit outdoorsy, but all of that came to a grinding halt. And it was then that I realized there was a problem. Now, <clears throat> at this point, I'd started working um, for the intelligence services um, uh, as a telecommunications specialist. And in that environment, it's very much shut down. Nothing personal. You get on, you do your job, you keep your mouth shut and you just get on with it. And during that particular role, I dealt with a number number of really distressing events, um, you know, global events or terrorism events, those kinds of things. So all of this stuff is stacking on top of what had already happened. Um, and the symptoms became stronger and stronger and stronger. And it got to a point, something happened at work where um, I ended up leaving um, that role and went to work for the police service. And within the first six months of me joining that particular police service, there were three or four colleague suicides. One colleague was killed. Another died in a car accident. So again, these are all high level traumas. And the thing that really made me sit up and realize there was a problem still was the fact that I was walking into a, I was walking into work every day. I didn't know any of the, the people that had passed away. No idea who they were, never spoken to them, never met them, didn't even know their names. But every time the topic came up or something happened that, that highlighted those events, it would completely destroy me. Um, we had a, uh, there was one particular um, individual who, um, the circumstances around which him, around him passing away were really traumatic for those that knew him. And a, a really close friend of mine that was a police officer knew him really, really well. And she rang me up one day, she was on shift and she just said, I, I need 20 minutes. I'm switching my radios off. I'm just going to go and sit in the crew room. I was like, okay, fine. And she was in tears and I couldn't work the rest of my shift. And I felt so selfish because it's like, I didn't even know him, this person that had died. Why am I reacting like this? Who am I to react like this? And that was a real struggle. And, and again, that's overwhelming guilt and shame coming in. I felt shameful that I was getting so emotional about somebody passing away that I didn't know. And I had colleagues around me that were falling to pieces because they knew this person that they worked with him. Um, <clears throat> so as you can see the picture beginning to build all this stuff is building up and building up and building up and at this point and um, for a number of years i felt like i had no control over me didn't understand why i was reacting to the world the way i was didn't understand why my emotions were behaving the way they were didn't understand what was happening in my own head and it ended up in me um leaving the police service having a massive mental breakdown and uh at that point that's when life changed and life started to get better um but yeah so the symptoms the ptsd bit um i did get a diagnosis of ptsd um and unfortunately because of circumstance uh it meant that i missed out on the opportunity to get a specific therapy for it which wasn't available on the nhs and i couldn't afford to pay for it myself so I then had to start a journey of breaking all this down and understanding what it was, why it was happening and tackling it at the root cause of the problem, which is standard therapy, right? But I was, it was self therapy. And I think after 
probably two or three years, I managed to get to a point, maybe four years, I managed to get to a point where actually I was okay again. So I had the breakdown and then it was a four year turnaround to get back to normal. All right, well, normal, what's normal, right? But back to as close to normal as possible. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's kind of the chronology of what happened. Um, yeah, and and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot to have learned from that. Incredible, incredible. And I think it's a lot for people to absorb and take on board everything you've been through and where you've actually managed to get your life to after all the hurdles that have come, al come along the way. Um, Just before you go on, I think it's really important to say um, one of the, and again, we spoke about this before we start recording this, one of the things that I struggle with before I do anything like this, I have an innate fear that people will think, and you know, Andy's just sitting there banging on about, oh, poor me. That is not what this is about. The, the biggest problem that we face as human beings, um, specifically from a male perspective, is an inability for men to open up. The reason that I do, the only reason I do what I do is because it's so important that male, female, whatever, you know, whatever sexual orientation you are, skin color you are, gender, whatever it might be, everybody by the nature of the fact that they're human being need to be able to talk so uh, again i know that's a bit of a defensive thing to say the only reason i talk about this stuff is not because i want sympathy i personally don't view that i've been through uh, yes i've been through some horrific traumas but then so have millions and millions of other people and actually millions of people out there look at ukraine at the moment um, you know, the Middle East, everything that's happened all, all around the globe, people have been through far worse, infinitely worse trauma than I've been through. So, again, I just want to make that point. This is not about a sympathy thing. This is about me saying to people, uh, it's important to talk. Thank you. And thank thank you so much for sharing that. And probably anyone listening will realise why I had to pause quite a few times when I've listened to this before in the video that you shared with me but um yeah I think there's probably tiny bits of that whether anyone's been through the same situation or similar situations that people can take from that as well um and I think you know one of the biggest things you've just said is talking about it and you know if you're in a place where you can talk about it and contextualize things in your head it does have a huge huge difference um, and this kind of brings you around, you know, let's delve a little bit deeper into men's mental health. You know, why do men find it so difficult to talk about things? And, you know, not just not just themselves telling their story, but why do other men struggle to check in with their friends as well that they know maybe, you know, do need that support? So please can you just, you know, enlighten us a little bit on this and give some suggestions as to how how we can get men talking. And I only had this yesterday with a, a client I was working with. They like, we've got shop full floor of work, shop floor full of men workers. How can we get them talking? That's a piece of work I'm going to be doing with them. But I'd love to know your thoughts on that and your words of wisdom. 
So there is a huge caveat to me answering this, and and that is that one, I'm not a psychologist, two, I'm not a counsellor, and three, I have no mental health qualification. So I'm speaking as a man and a human being to answer this question. Um, <clears throat> for me, it, there's a there are two there are two um, expressions or terms used in the corporate world. One of them is psychological safety, the other is trust. Now the answer to the question why do men not talk? Um, and this is a controversial view, but I think that's because that's the way society has told us to behave, right? So you're a bloke, pull your socks up. What are you getting upset about? Get on with it, move on. All of these expressions that we've all heard and, you know, it chips away at you every single time because you're left with a sense of nobody cares, okay? So when you're subjected to that stimulus repeatedly, it impacts your self-esteem, your self-worth, your self-value. But because you're a bloke, you keep your mouth shut, you get on with it, you don't start going against the grain. Um, now, I can't remember the, the statistics, but um, there is a scary statistic around suicide rates in men um, comparative to women. And a lot of work has been done around breaking that data down. And the suicide rates in men is uh, are far higher than they are in women because allegedly because of mental health um, issues. Now, um, that is a journey that I'm doing my little bit to try and impact on humanity and change. And the way I see it, um, I'm actually going to um, look at it from a third person's perspective because I'm not entirely comfortable. I'm, I'm, uh, sorry, I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable saying this of myself, but this is how other people perceive me. Um, part of my professional life working in marketing, I do a lot of facilitation around uh, running branding workshops, marketing strategy, all that kind of stuff, right? So I have an innate ability to be able to stand in front of a room of people, whether they are um, uh, marketing execs, as in um, senior leadership, whether they're marketing managers or whether they're content creators, copywriters, marketeers, people that, that are doing the work, the implementation part of the work. And I seem to be able to hold that audience and to get them engaged. And when I started thinking about how I could use my story, this is going back five or six years, to help this thing around men's mental health, that was the one thing I fell back on was the fact that people kept telling me that I was a fascinating person to talk to and people stay engaged when I'm holding an audience still don't see it, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so for me, when I'm engaged in, um, I see, I don't like using that word when, when I'm talking as a human to another human being, especially when it's men, um, I'm very good at reading what's going on in their eyes. So you can tell when someone's disengaged or when somebody's got other stuff on their mind or they're distracted. And the, the key is to allow them, firstly, is to earn their trust, but secondly, is to make them make them understand that the space that they are in is safe to talk. So they, we're talking about psychological safety and trust. If you give them a space where they can sit and talk, and this applies to all human beings, but the, but the application here specifically is for men, then you are more likely to get them to open up about what's going on in their head. Now, what I have noticed is that it, it the, the effectiveness of that approach depends on the generation. So my dad, bless him, he's nearly 80. 
He will not talk to anybody about anything emotional going on inside his head. That's the way he's built. And it's a similar feel with um, my uncles and other people in that generation. They just will not open up because it's not the man thing to do. People in my generation. Um, so again, I'm 40, uh, 44 ish around that somewhere. Um, are uncomfortable opening up, but they will, if you, if you give them that space and time and then really positively and something that really, really drives um, energy into me is that the younger generations are far more open to talking about mental health because of the awareness they hold. Now, the breaking point for me was that my son's godfather, uh, Jesse's godfather is also um, a lifelong best friend. This guy is six foot eight. He's an ex-semi-professional rugby player. He weighed 22 stone and he had a 24-inch neck. The guy is a man mountain. He makes me feel small, right? And I'm six foot six. All the way through growing up, he was seen as being the um, the hard man, the the um, the bloke no one would mess with, and the one that you just wouldn't, um, you know, wouldn't challenge. And when, um, and again, out of respect for him, I'm not going to go into any details, but when my son died, it really affected him. And it, affect, it affected him in a way that I had no idea until a couple of years later. And we always had this unwritten thing that there was, he was the chief and I was um, just the tag along. That was the way we grew up. And he, uh, when, yeah, when my son died, it changed our relationship completely. And uh, we, he struggled to talk to me for the first year or so. Um, and then when we got together after that, I, I rang him up one day and I said, look, we need to talk, mate. We, we, we've known each other for a long time and it's just gone quiet. We got together, we had a conversation and um, there were a number of things that affected him from my son dying. Now, from that point, it opened up our ability to communicate with each other about how we were feeling. And he told me stuff about him, and it's the same vice versa, that to our generation, you would never share with another bloke, just wouldn't talk about. And the the pinnacle illustration of this particular scenario is that, as I said, he's an ex-semi-professional rugby player, and he was out playing rugby one Saturday with his team. And we all know the reputation that rugby players have, right? bit boisterous drinking loads proper men alpha male types uh, and again uh stereotyping for humor purposes there and i went into the bar to go and see him <clears throat> and without thinking because i completely forgot where i was i went over and hugged him that's what we always did when we saw each other walk up to him give him a hug he'd hug me are you all right are you actually all right and we'd have that conversation <laughs> that conversation And I did that in the middle of a packed rugby club with however many uh, people there are on a rugby team all covered in mud and they all, the whole bar went quiet. And it was like in a movie, there was this mate of mine and I stood in the middle of this pub hugging each other and everybody around us just stopped looking, stopped what they were doing and looked at us. And we very quickly realized what was going on and kind of did that normal or oh, whatever and kind of move on rugby, whatever, drink, pint, 
kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and it really highlighted something for me that this man mountain that I was never scared of him, but I was a bit intimidated by him because he was massive and he has, he's got the loudest laugh you can imagine. Rugby player type. Um, he became incredibly vulnerable and that was through a shared experience. But when I analysed it, it was about trust and safe space. So that's the approach that I take whenever I deal with anything like this. It's about sharing trauma uh, and leading by example. So by me talking about stuff I've been through, you open up the opportunity for people to relate to you with stuff they've been through. Um, you're also building trust by being vulnerable and you're in the context that you're doing it, you're creating a safe space and that will encourage people to open up and it, and it works and it has some incredible results. Interesting, really interesting. I think there's lots of take-homes from that. Thank you. And that, yeah, there's lots of things you know, I took from that in terms of like your vulnerability. And if anyone's listened to the there's a uh, TEDx talk from Brené Brown around vulnerability, which is really, really highlights the importance of, you know, if someone just shares something about themselves, you just feel so more comfortable, don't you, to share something about yourself and the way you've managed to develop that relationship with such a alpha male is... You know, it's incredible. And I talk a lot in my work around making health contagious. That's the way I, the, the saying that I always say is making health contagious. But, you know, really probably in the world you're talking about now, it's making that vulnerability contagious so that people feel like they can be honest and can talk. And in that situation where you said, you know, you gave him a hug in a room full of rugby players, you know, I'm thinking probably half of them were thinking, I wish I had a mate that I could do that with as well. You and say that, you say that, but then the following season I went to watch him again and traditionally they'd obviously, and I subsequently found out this was the case, but they'd taken on board what had happened. And when he, because because by me doing that, it opened up an opportunity for him to tell them, his close mates, so he never told this before, that his godson had died. And from that point, there, it, it affected the way the team operated <clears throat> and before every match they used to get changed stand in the middle of the changing room and give each other a hug now wow. i wasn't actually going to tell you that because i it, it puts a frog in my throat i get quite emotional about that but that one act where i walked up and hugged a mate affected 15 people all men all of them alpha males and i've been out drinking with that lot i know what they're like and it changed the it changed the game for them, not just the rugby game, but actually the game, as in the game we're all playing of life, right? Massive impact. So it's like you say, it's these tiny little things that have snowball effects. Wow. I will remember that story forever. And I'll tell you what, anyone listening to this, just remember the power of a hug and think what it could actually do and how much that could change the lives of different people, the power of a hug. Um so thank, thank you for that. I'm conscious of time. We're coming towards the end of our time together. Um, very quickly, I've, well, before I close up, you've spoken a little bit, you know, you've given us a bit of an insight, talked about being a game changer, about being strategist and, you know, these different impacts. Can you just give it a light and a, a little bit more around that, please? Yeah, this is a nice close to this conversation because it's it's the bit that really energizes me. <clears throat> so we were talking originally about me 
struggling to find direction and finding a place in life where it worked and where I worked and where I was having a positive impact on people. Nine years ago, I had um, come out of um, come out of the police. I've been working for an insurance company. I did that just to earn money. I could do the job with my eyes shut. But I reached the crossroads, <clears throat> the final crossroads, or the final time I ever reached that crossroads where it was give up, walk away from life or bear down and push through. And at that point, I was introduced to a um, an, a group of people that were doing some research around um, disruptors, what they now call game changers. And their ethos was that uh, not everybody's a game changer, but everybody can make a game changing impact and contribution to their world. And I went I was one of their guinea pigs. So they'd done this research and they started, they created this profiling tool. And I profiled on the profiling tool and uh, I spent four hours in an Italian restaurant with their chief psychologist, a guy called Dr. John Mervyn Smith. And he went through my profile based on their framework. And at that point, it explained every single thing about my life. Absolutely everything. You know, the, the reason I reacted the way I did, what was driving my disruptive nature, why I was such a protagonist um, and actually at times antagonistic within employment roles, why um, I didn't like corporate life and all the rest of it. The long and short of it was they then offered me a job and I've been working for them ever since as, as a what we call digital game changer strategist. The organization I'm talking about is a company called the GC Index and um, they are a profiling tool that identify your natural energy or inclination to make an impact to the world around you and they give and the profile gives you a language that opens up the ability to communicate with anybody it takes ego out of the room it takes gender off the table sexual orientation skin color all of the all of those things where discrimination come in all the labels so this is what we were talking about before and it removes all of that and it allows you as a human being to play to your strengths. And that's why you'll hear ingrained in whenever, you know, you and I speak and whenever I talk to anybody, I very much have I very much use that language and framework because it's the only way I find it easy to relate to other human beings is to say, this is how I make my impact to the world. This is my energy. This is why sometimes you'll find me too much because I'm 200 mile an hour, 50,000 ideas in a day because that's my energy for life. Um, and it's, it's a great organization and the profiling tool is, is off on leaps and bounds in terms of helping people unleash themselves. It's that self-awareness piece. It is. And I do echo that as well. I've, also, you know, I've been profiled on this and I work very closely with the Game Changer Collective in terms of the wellbeing programme and delivering this as well because, you know, wellbeing and leading with your impact and just being the best, you know, delivering and thriving the best you possibly can um, is important to everyone. So, yeah, if you want to find out a little bit more about that, do get in touch with either themselves or Andy or the Game Changer Collective. So we're wrapping up now. The final question, Andy, this is the final one that everyone's going to take something away from this. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. It must be time for pause. So the last one is, what are your three steps to living 
your life as your whole self? What can you tell our listeners? What would be your recommendation? I always try to finish with your three small steps to talk about small steps sleeping health. So what are your three small steps you can tell people to do to live their life as their whole self? So the the first the first one is obvious, right? It, it's health and well being, okay. And and there are tens of thousands, if not millions, of people out there saying that 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 should be obvious. That one, it's really important to look after your body. Really important to look after your state of mind. The second one is around self awareness. The only way to feel completely at peace with who you are is to know who you are because the thing that's going to drive the biggest insecurity and, and impact to your self-esteem is when you don't understand why you're doing things you're doing. So understanding who you are and embracing that is important. Number three is understanding where you fit in the world, because if you understand, if you understand where you fit in the world, you'll make your best impact people will recognize you for your impact and all of the positive behaviors and interactions will come off the back of it. I spent 20 years of my life flapping around with no idea what the hell I was doing, disrupting everything, annoying everybody. And it was that it was an incredibly destructive, negative experience and it affected me profoundly. If I knew then at the age of 15, 16, what I know now, my traumas wouldn't be any different, but my life would have been completely different and my coping mechanisms would have been in place when I needed them rather than having to, to go through, um, you know, the scarring process to be able to, to develop those. So as I say, health and well-being number one, self-awareness, spend some time getting to know yourself and then understand how you apply yourself into the bigger picture and where you fit in the world. Amazing. Wonderful. I'm going to put those in the show notes so anyone can reflect on those and see how you can actually implement those. So those are great small steps to leap health. Um, so thank you. That has been amazing, really insightful, really informative, really moving. Um, but most of all, probably giving people lots and lots of things to take away for them to be the whole self and provide enough clarity and confidence to thrive in the world. So Thank you, Andy, so much. Um, and yeah, if you want to find out more, do get in touch. It's Anna at leaphealth.co.uk. Andy, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. So it's Andy Cracknell. Uh, or alternatively, I'm Andy at Be Seen Media. So it's B-E-S-W-E-N media.co.uk. Thank you. So before you start listening, I want you to think about how you can make health contagious. Did anything resonate in the podcast? What did you learn that was new? Did you hear something that you thought someone else would love to hear? If so, please share this podcast. Please leave me a review or please get in touch at anna at leaphealth.co.uk to learn more about how you can improve physical and mental health of individuals and those in the workplace so that everybody can feel happier and healthier and more productive. Thank you.